we all have our own path to walk. It may be obstructed, it may be winding, and no doubt it will have peaks and valleys, but it is ours alone. Like onlookers at a marathon, friends and family can offer encouragement along the way, but ultimately we decide the trajectory that we take. In this series, Juliet Doris Williams offers a clear view from her path that may inform your decisions as you move toward finding your faith. One part spirituality, one part real world practicality, and a serious splash of fun. Here's Juliet. Hi, I'm Juliet. Welcome to Finding Faith. Among other things, I'm the author of Leaving Church Finding Faith, and I am here in this space chatting with you about the book and other things that may bubble up from time to time when we are talking about faith and life and how those two things intersect. Because if you are at all like me, they always intersect. So welcome back, friends. I've been reflecting on being faithful. The last couple of episodes, I've ruminated on being faithful in the dark, in the dark when things when life and situations look bleak and sad and hopeless. I then noodled out loud on being faithful in the light when things and life and situations and circumstances seem much more hope-filled. Today I want to talk about just being faithful. And this is less an act as it is a state of being. Acting faithful is being mindful with your words, with your actions. Being faithful is being mindful with your thoughts. Proverbs 23, 7 talks about who we are on the inside. Roughly, this verse says, as we think within ourselves, so are we. That particular passage in the Bible offers an example of a person who is outwardly welcoming and attentive, but inwardly is resentful and calculating and less than generous despite their action. I was reminded of a scene in the musical Hamilton when Alexander Hamilton walks up and officially introduces himself to Aaron Burr who finally takes notice of this man standing in front of him, spouting a bunch of words, rapping, really, and says, talk less, smile more. Don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. Those are words from a play, possibly historical, possibly just historic license. I think of it now in this probably historic time we are living in, For real, people, the year 2020 will definitely not be a footnote in history. It won't be a footnote for many reasons. There will be stories about how we survived 2020, if we survive, that is. We lived through a global pandemic. We lived through widespread community unrest that actually also spread across the globe. The twin pandemics the media has taken to calling it. The actual virus that has claimed hundreds of thousands of lives just in the U.S. and the cultural revolution, more like a revelation. Think illumination, not the apocalypse. But, you know, maybe that's just semantics now that I'm thinking about it. A revelation that what we thought were global ideals, 
ideals, basic things that we can agree on, even if we didn't agree on nuance, even if there were layers of interpretation, ideals upon which many of us thought of as bedrock. Many of us are coming to the recognition that these bedrock ideals are not the universal truths about who we are as a people. And of course, I'm I'm talking primarily about we in the U.S. of A, who in the year 2020 are coming to a reckoning about our collective selves. One day recently, I received a magazine in the mail, and with it came a little sticker, little peel peel them off kind of things, thing that said, "Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly." It arrived on a day when my shoulders were up by my ears, my jaw was clenched, and I was probably doing some shallow breathing, all symptoms of high anxiousness. Those three commands from Micah 6-8, one of my faves, arrived just in time, just in time to remind me to breathe. That passage always reminds me that there is a God in whom I trust. Not only that, it reminds me that I have a responsibility. I have work to do, even if, even when I'm feeling pretty powerless by the forces that be. It reminds me that Jesus walked the earth and for the three years prior to his crucifixion, knowing that his time was short, he went around loving people, teaching people, healing people, feeding people, admonishing people when necessary. What Brene Brown would call speaking truth to bullshit while being civil. That's the exact quote. Because what are we here for but to care for one another, to take care of one another? Why is that not our highest, most important work? That might be the universal question. Anywho, I was reminded to breathe, and I was reminded that I don't get to dismiss people. I don't get to dehumanize people. I don't get to hate people because they are hating me, hating me with their actions, hating me with their voice, hating me with their vote. I am reminded about what I said about God not requiring any of us, any of us to hang on a cross because that work is done, finished, over. I am again reminded that loving the ones who love us is easy. Loving the ones who hate us is the actual work. The reason that it is work is because you have to choose it. We have to decide. I have to decide that I will not return your hate with hate. We each have to choose love. Maybe we should exchange the word love for mercy. Another word for mercy is humanity. We have to remind ourselves that we are dealing with humanity and all her imperfect imperfection, the good, the bad, the uninformed, and the unimpressed. We have to breathe and we have to remind ourselves that this is a fellow or sister human standing in front of us. And we have to act accordingly. That is, if we are followers of the way of Jesus, like the Mandalorians say, this is the way. Being faithful, living 
faithful means aligning our thoughts with our words, then aligning those words with our actions. It is one thing to say love. It is another to do love. And so because I had that revelation and my shoulders were no longer up around my ears and my jaw was now relaxed and I was breathing more deeply, I waded into the war of online commentary. O-M-G. All of my feeds are curated a certain way because of the things I react to. Lots of love and light, lots of health and safety, a fair amount of politics because I'm a political being, a few jokes now and then. And there was this one post on this one day reminding people on pandemic safety protocols from one of my local political leaders. You would have thought the dude stole all their cows and horses, burned down their barn, scorched their land, and stole all their money. By the way, I live in a state with majority rural counties, if you hadn't figured that out. So much heat, so much hate. And me, little Miss Mary Sunshine, commented about the level of heat and hate in all the comments. Too much heat, too much hate, over the top. Just really, people. And, well, dear listener, the battle royale was on. Who knew I was saying something controversial? 33 comments later, yes, 33 comments from people I don't know who don't know me. And I was still calm enough to ask the last commenter, what are we really arguing about here? Where is the difference of opinion? Because after all that, the last commenter was concerned about their family. They were concerned about not being able to provide for them and keep them safe. We were not on opposite sides at all. Did I make a friend? No. But I also didn't make an enemy. Love mercy. Choose to see the humanity. Yes, in that 33-comment war, there were a number of hand grenades of name-calling and random and accurate facts and big ugly words tossed at me. I didn't have time to respond to every comment, but I made a decision to not react to the heat, only to the words. That meant I could respond back with facts as I understood them, not a fact check, mind you, just random factoids I had picked up from my own efforts to educate myself. My war, what my war of words with 33 strangers reminds me of the first part of that Brene Brown quote I said earlier. The first part is people are hard to hate close up, move in. It's my supposition that the closer we come toward each other, the brighter the light of understanding is. Even if we are still standing on opposite sides of a given line, we at least know why we are on one side and can't come closer. We at least are standing close enough to the person on the other side of that line to hear straight from them why they can't cross over to our side of the line. And the fact that we are close enough to see each other better means that we can see the humanness in each other. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement and another of my spirit twins, had this to say 
about the rich and poor. One great reason why the rich in general have so little sympathy for the poor is because they so seldom visit them. Hence it is that according to the common observation, one part of the world does not know what the other suffers. Many of them do not know because they do not care to know. They keep out of the way of knowing it and then plead their voluntary ignorance as an excuse for their hardness of heart. He goes on to write, Our perspective changes with proximity. It is easy to overlook a need until it is staring at you in the face. This is why it is so important for us to live in community with others. When we isolate ourselves, we miss out on ways God wants to use us to meet the needs of others, or we miss out on ways God wants to meet our needs through others. Maybe John Wesley was the Brene Brown of his day. We aren't in the 18th century world of John Wesley, and I am not convinced that the rich, generally speaking, of course, have no sympathy for the poor. Philanthropy is a popular thing among some of those with means to be generous with their financial resources. In the 21st century world, we are, in a general sense, empathy poor. And it's not just the stark difference between the rich and the poor. It's also the urban from the rural, the old, the old versus the young. It's between races and genders and all orientations. We are short on empathy when we encounter difference. It is difficult for us to empathize with the other when we don't understand and when we can't get past the pithy meme, when we don't create opportunities to hear each other's why. We, the collective we, have put people in a box of our own creation. We have written the script on other people and their belief systems without doing the hard work of digging into how that belief system was built. It can be hard, tedious work. It's certainly patient work to get underneath the meaning behind the words, to get behind the masks that we hide behind to get beyond the fear we have of being vulnerable and powerless and real and true. It's hard work and a long road. How does one who desires to be faithful start down that road? One step at a time, one person at a time, one action at a time, sometimes one word at a time, maybe even one breath at a time. It certainly requires a pause. We can light and feed the fire, or we can douse the fire. Maybe just mist it a little. Cool it down by simply not acting on that first thought, not reacting to the heat. Ask a question. Try to find out how they got here. Talk more. Smile less. People are doing a lot of hiding behind those smiles, sometimes behind those scowls. People are doing a lot of hiding their fear. Seek the humanity. Wait for it to show up. Reflect that back. Feed the light of humanity when and where you can. One common at a time. One human at a time. Worth a try? I think so. 
I hope you do too. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Finding Faith.